Hey everybody, this is Clay. Welcome to episode two of the Dad Bird Project. This episode's broken up into two parts. The first 10 minutes or so is an interview I did with Neil kind of wrapping up some of the statements he made in episode one. I wanted to clarify some of the uh, points that he was making about Sean's goal being a process. What does that mean exactly? So we go through some of the intricacies of Neil's process and some of the things he's learned in his 10 or so years playing golf professionally. And after that, we'll get into the full episode with Gus, myself, and Sean, a.k.a. Dadbird. And with that, I give you my friend and PGA Tour Latino America member, Neil Ajibita. Neil, in episode one, you stated that Sean's goal is a process. Can you elaborate on what that means exactly to you? Uh, It's a process because there's nothing... Uh, outcome oriented that you can truly control for me to say I played well today I shoot 66 let's say everyone else shoots 65 you have no control over that number wise it's a failure so I don't think you can truly judge success by a number or by a uh, an outcome I think everything all your goals should be um, measured by you know what you can control and I think the things you can control are you know your focus your emotional state and uh, you know gathering all the right information to uh, hit the shots that you want to hit so within that how would you describe your let's break that in you said three different things there you said you can handle your focus you can handle your emotional state and you can handle how you gather information so how would you describe your process personally first of all for feeling like you are in control of your focus for the day everybody's different and as i've worked with uh sports psychologists i've come to realize that you know when i am feeling uncomfortable my brain likes to race and when i say races i mean i'm thinking about the shots i hit before the shots that i may potentially hit in the future i may get emotionally erratic and down on myself or too high on myself um i'm trying to to um, approach every shot as a routine so there is a there's a gathering of information with a clear with a clear mind given that you know i I meditate and i try to keep myself cool and um i i gather my information and i i hit my shot and i process it and i go to my next shot and i try to meditate and or you know, watch the clouds or birds, something that is very neutral and not golf related, just to give my brain a rest so that the next time I go to hit my next shot, it's like another day, I'm able to go through the same process again. Very cool. Very cool. I remember you saying that in the past that you try to keep yourself like outside. You you said you kind of like have your eyes up on the horizon, you're looking around, you're taking in nature. And for you... That is like a reset button for you after the shot is over with. How about when you hit a really bad shot and you're super mad? How have you learned to manage that? Yeah, it's all pretty tied in together. I mean, uh, as long as I wasn't emotional prior to hitting that bad shot, um, I can I can process that emotionally. And I can have a negative reaction. But as long as I process it and figure out, okay, um, you know, have something in mind of, you know, all right, this is what I have to do next. And you can let it go and 
separate for a second, continue on. But as long as I'm uh, emotionally prepared and I've got all my information, if I hit a bad shot, honestly, I shouldn't get too upset, though. Okay, so you're saying it's okay to get mad as long as you recognize that you're mad and you deal with the fact that you're mad so it doesn't affect your next shot. Correct, yeah. I don't want to tie anything together. I like them all to be separate entities. If you hit a bad shot, there's nothing you can do to change it. The only thing you can do to make things better is to process it and move forward and treat every shot with as much importance as the ones before. Any advice for Sean uh, if he's got a choice to ride on a cart versus walk for the tournament? There's a difference between you know driving a cart and and uh, riding in the cart. If I was Sean, if he's riding, if he has an opportunity to ride with somebody, I would totally check out and not drive the cart. Just sit there and chill. I mean, unless you're sitting with a maniac. Um, so let the would, other would, guy drive. Huh? Yeah, let someone else drive. Why? Um, it kind of gives you time just to um, to relax. Driving kind of engages your brain a little more. I'd, I'd like to see, I'd like to hear Sean say, you know, I I was able to, you know, uh, go through the full cycle of preparing, executing, and digesting in between shot stuff, hitting it. Let's say he hits a bad shot. He's pretty, he might slam the gas or he might be pissed. Um, if he's just riding, he's got no control, he's just serving and being passive. And that would be my um, opinion on that. If you had the option, would you rather walk or drive for the tournament? Depends on the golf course, man. Some of them are really tough. and uh, This one's super walkable from what I can see on the drone cam. You know, if, if pace, specifically if pace of play is really slow, I highly encourage walking. Uh, and even more so if they allow uh, the push cart. Push cart's good. It doesn't do anything bad for your body. Um, but even if to carry, if it's a pretty flat golf course, I think it's a it's a good way to pass time and not basically run your golf ball and sit and um, you know create ways for you to uh, escape the uh, the upcoming shot. So I I highly encourage walking if it's easy. You've mentioned breathing in the past. Any breathing tips for Sean? There's something that I've used before and it's kind of been nice. Um, it's it's something that maybe he could play with while he practices, but I use breathing sometimes as an accelerator or a break. What I mean by that is if I'm feeling kind of um, bored, because sometimes I get bored on the golf course. It seems somewhat monotonous. I'll uh, I'll hit the accelerator to get myself more engaged. So I'll I'll take more breaths in. I'll I'll take in for like a like a five count of of air in and maybe like a three count out so i'm taking in more air than i'm pushing out just to kind of get my blood up 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 and then if i'm feeling excited i'll take smaller breaths in a shot that's very important i'll try to limit in and i'll push more out to try to bring things back lower that's super cool that requires a great deal of awareness i think that that's a consistent theme with what makes you a really good golfer and one of these lessons that you learn as you get to the top tier of, of golf is, is you have to be very aware of your body. And that's a cool insight. I like that a lot. So we're, we're moderating our breath to kind of put ourselves in the right uh, headspace. And then at some point you arrive at the golf ball. Do you have like a certain number of looks that you're playing with? Or are, 
Is it just whatever makes I, you comfortable over I, the ball? I find that having um, preferences like that, if I if I take like, okay, I'll, I'll probably like to take between two and three looks. I mean, I'm not going to take one look and go. That's never going to happen. But if I find myself looking up for the fifth time, you know, I'm basically going to tell myself, hey, like that's, a, that's enough and you need to back off. And that's, that's a hard thing to um, kind of be aware of too. You know, when to back off is a, is a, is a key thing when to pull a trigger. And I know a lot of people do pull the trigger when they're not comfortable. And, um, you gotta, you gotta find what's comfortable. And even if you have to back off it a couple of times, you gotta be prepared to pull a trigger when you feel like you're ready. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say a hard number, but it should be between, you know, two, three, four, that's it. It's kind of like once but, it once it becomes a thing, then you got to back off. Once you become aware of, oh, why am I looking up so many times? Then it's like your awareness is in the wrong spot. Time to reset. So you don't allow yourself to ever hit a golf shot when you recognize that you're bored. So is that that's when you're pumping yourself up with breath. If if I do, because if I'm bored, I'm really not engaged in getting uh, my specific numbers. Like I'm kind of like, yeah, this is kind of good enough. So like those are the only times I really get pissed at myself if I'm really not giving a damn about what's going on mm-hmm. or if I place too much importance on a shot and I can't find uh, my middle ground again. Those are those are kind of like my two uh, no nos. Um, hitting hitting bad golf shots are understandable um, as long as like I said, you know, if if I'm prepared, right? I mean. I, I accept it and I got to move forward. I guess we can end with anything that you feel left that we haven't discussed that you feel like you've learned from your basically decade of playing professional golf. Uh, anything that Sean can, can learn from you uh, to help him during his upcoming qualifier. Hmm. Um, as a person who's picked things up slowly over time, but it keeps getting better. I would say just because if it, I mean if you fail on the first try, I mean don't consider that a failure. Um, I mean if you're you know if you're going through the right steps, you're always getting better, whether you see it on the scorecard or not. So patience, and uh, that's my take on that. There's the bill. That means it's time for part two of the Dad Bird Project. Here we go. Hey everybody, welcome to the Dad Bird Project. Episode two, we're with Sean Canan, owner and director of Canan Funeral Homes. Sean, how are you doing this morning? Doing great. Doing great. Looking forward to uh, quite a morning. You look like for having such a five o'clock shadow, you must have shaved last night. I shaved at 5 p.m. That's fantastic. I, I shaved before I go to bed. And, of course, we also have Clayton Winnell out of Dallas, Texas. He's a PGA professional who is a professional caddy at the moment, but he specializes in the mental game. He's pursued it on numerous tours, and he's got a tremendous amount of knowledge base that takes us through all parts of the game. So it's interesting to have him on the show because it's not only just about the motion and the fundamentals of the game, but also what's going on inside your mind. And I think that's the difference between the tour and you at home. And that's the difference that we're going to try to close on with Sean and what he does in the golf game. So Clayton, how are you doing? 
Life's good here. We had a little east-northeast wind out there on the golf course today, kind of the edge of a uh, storm front. I got to caddy for some uh, professional golfers today. They will go unnamed, but uh, tour players. And it was pretty inspiring to watch, especially the putting. I was watching the putting. I was like, man, they hit it exactly where they're trying to hit it. And I get exposed. If I give a bad read, they hit it exactly <laughs> where they where I tell them to hit it. And they're looking back at me and I can't be like, oh, you pushed it. It's like, No, I hit it exactly where you were telling me to. So it's a whole nother level. It's a fun job. I like caddying because... Uh, I'll, I'll caddy for a 36 handicap one day, and then the next day I'm caddying for one of the world's best players. So it's kind of fun to roll the dice and see who you get on any given day. But life's good here. Enjoying the Dad Bird Project. Uh, this is, is a lot of fun for me. We're, we're calling this episode two. We've done a few episodes leading up to this to try to figure out what exactly we're doing here. But I think we've sort of honed in on um, episode one was all about developing a process for Sean uh, that was one of the great insights Neil kind of honed in for us in the last episode was, you know, let Sean focus on what he can control in his golf game. And one of the things that he can control is his process. Neil says his goal, you know, we're saying his goal is to get into the mid end, but really what he's trying to do is put together a process and it's up to, up to us to rack our brains, to come up with bits of suggestion, things that Sean can do short term to make himself have a better chance of qualifying for this mid-am qualifier here in a few weeks. We're, we're in short-term goal mode. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's in a, a, it also pertains to a larger scope as well. We're talking about the player at home who's got a lot of different priorities in his life, right? He's got his job. He's got his family. He's got things that he has to do with them. And then golf probably falls, I think, in his mind, hopefully third, but it probably ends up falling to fourth or five, right, on the list, right? So we're talking about the guy at home who's a good player, who's done some really cool things in the game, but doesn't have much time anymore to commit. So what can we do with that player to help them get better? And what can we do with your games at home? So Sean, your homework for this week, we talked about the process. Clayton was right. You talked about, you know, we've used the word zombie mode on the golf course. We've talked about all these different things, but we also worked on a little bit of the fundamental with chipping. How'd that go for you? Really well, I think. Uh, okay. So work's been really busy, so I haven't gotten out to the golf course, but I've been here. I've been at work all week, and there's been a ton of downtime. So I've been, you know, short game at work. Got to pass the time somehow. So you sent me, you sent me a video based on my chipping, my current chipping process, and I've probably I probably worked on it four or five times. I probably hit a few hundred balls chipping, and okay, good, I've really. I really feel comfortable. At first, it was the stance was uncomfortable. Like, yeah, my back was sore. Like, it just felt really unnatural, really unathletic. Yeah. And then, uh, once I just kind of figured out how to stand comfortably and just like make it feel normal, uh, I I really have I don't have many misses anymore. The only problem is I'm not trying out on my golf course, so I'm not really sure of the, you know, yeah. how the ball actually responds. But as far as the actual motion itself, I feel really comfortable trying it out and I feel really comfortable with it. So I'm looking yeah. forward to taking it to the golf course. 
Clay, we so Clay and I uh, sort of edited this video together about for the people at home. If you haven't seen the video, it's about the chippy motion. It's how to get the club more on the plane um, going back, and the plane I think is pointed more left than people assume it. So it's really difficult for a player, I think, to start to trust this. So you're talking about all the right things, I think, in learning that skill. Clay, when when you saw Sean kind of going through his initial chips to how he sort of transitioned. What did you think? Did you think it was getting better? How did it look to you? Uh, it looked like uh, the first set of videos that he sent were sort of like a small step in the right direction. Uh, I sent a follow-up video I can put up on the uh, Instagram page. But to me, the first video that Sean sent, he was still sending that club inside. It wasn't as much inside his hands, so that was an improvement. He was kind of keeping the club head out in front of his hands more theoretically uh, a less complicated move but the face was still um the grooves on the club face at the peak of his backswing were still pointed well right of the ball so that's the club face kind of twisting open on the backswing and i think yeah. the big aha moment that in the latest video that i've seen is is sean learning to not roll those forearms as much taking the club back it's kind of more of a one-piece thing um and there's a video that I made sort of on top of the target line that that might be an easier way for people to understand what we're talking about. But that was the big takeaway. It seems like Sean is starting to realize that he can get the ball airborne. It's kind of counterintuitive. It feels like the club is hooded going back. But some, yeah, it's, it's very palm down. Palm down. The club face, I mean, it's tracking the target line into the average golfer. Like, there's no way this thing's going to get airborne. I mean, yeah. look at the grooves are down at the ground halfway back. How do I get it? But what they don't, what they fail to recognize is you maintain that this, the whole time and your body rotates the club through. So your body is really turning the club. Your forearms aren't turning the yeah. club. So he's keeping the same loft on the golf club, the entire motion, using the bounce on the club better and learning to hit like a, with a very passive club face and more active body. Yeah, I, I agree. Sean, did you feel like the ball was getting up in the air with less manipulation? Did you feel like it was easier? Yeah, much easier. One, And then from the video you sent me, you explained how, how you would miss. Like if you chunked it, you know, you, you bent over it. Or right. if, you, if you like sculled it, it was because the lever moved up. So I was able to diagnose my misses based on that and once i kind of just got comfortable on the third video I, I i could really feel the club face doing the work and i was just moving it was it was really really simple motion once i figured it out like yeah I'm looking forward to be able to chip with it's like playing five. cornhole right not, i mean i'm not a great cornhole player but i mean it's it but i get maybe you'll be but, better now <laughs> yeah. yeah, lever. Yeah, revs, buzzsaw. <laughs> so, so, Gus, let me let me see if I can act this out. I think this is a great visual for people at home. You're saying with your right hand, uh, a golfer at home that hits a chip shot that hits and skids and rolls out forever. If they want to learn to hit like a little nipper, they want to feel like at the back of the swing, their right palm is down. Yeah, so it's palm down to palm up. So how do they get there? So so this is just staying the same, right? Palm down, right. palm up. Right. Nothing's changing. Yep. So the only so the only way it's possible to deliver the club in a straight line 
and maintain the circle is if the center of the circle doesn't move. So the way I teach it a lot of the times is that the right shoulder is your center of your circle and the radius of that circle is the golf club plus your right arm. So if we don't move the shoulder left, right, up or down, then we don't change the circle. And if we don't change the circle, then we don't change the bottom of the arc. So then it's just a property of the golf club traveling on that circle, which gets the ball to go where we want it to go. There's no manipulation. There's no, like, we got to rotate. We got to do these things. It's just this idea of allowing an arm swing to work in this situation. And it that's why we call it pitching, right? You're pitching horseshoes. You're throwing a bowling ball. You're throwing a cornhole bag. It's the same thing everybody has the ability to swing their arm underneath their shoulder, which I'm calling the fulcrum. So as long as we keep that in the same place, and that's the hard part, Sean was totally right. The absolute hardest part about this is learning how to hold your body still because it's super unathletic. It doesn't make sense. It shouldn't be the way. It's not how you perceive it on tour. You watch Justin Thomas or any of those guys hit those nippers and it looks like they're rotating, leaning the club, holding it off, and then they're just like spinning fast. And it's not at all what's happening. What's really happening is that the club is always in a straight line. So there's no shuffling. And so it's about staying as still as possible, not by rotating as fast as possible. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that to me is the one skill that we're, we think we can realistically add to Sean's arsenal in like the one month leading up to this thing. This is a new skill. Oh, absolutely. Sean, would you say that that is like a totally foreign concept? Did you see that video I sent you where it like threw the ball? Like you feel like the club face could hold like a teacup on it? Yeah. I did see that. That was, that was cool. Is that like the way that you sent us the first video, is that how you tried to hit pretty much every shot just with different clubs? No, I only hit, I only chipped. I only, well, I did. I only chipped with a 60 degree wedge. And it's because you leaned it so much. Exactly. You hooded it. So you had to create loft. And so if you did that with any other club, it would just come out more left and lower essentially. And that's been, you know, this has been like a recent problem, like the last two or three years, is I all my chips were running forever past the hole. Mm-hmm. So I could never figure out why I couldn't even just get it to stop like within three feet. I wasn't trying to hit right. like a low spinner. I just was trying to get it close to have a reasonable right. control the distance. Yeah, I wasn't trying to make them. I just wanted and they just kept running forever and I could never figure out why. So missing the green was was a problem. So what does it feel like to you to do this new move? What what takeaways have you had in just the few hundred balls that you've hit? It it feels like a putting stroke almost. That's how because I feel my whole body moving. I, I don't know. Um, I never really thought about it. To me, um, I, I agree with that. I see your shoulders turning a lot more loosely. I feel like more one piece, mm-hmm. like it's, it's a, instead of, instead of my knees bent, my hands way forward and I'm trying to swing like around like a door. Right. Uh, and trying to like clip the ball on the it way It was down. so, yeah, it was so much effort for you to clip the ball. You had to maintain every bend in your body simultaneously and you had to do it under any amount of pressure at all times and as soon as you lose that bend you essentially either skull it or fat it and if you do that once around 
all of a sudden your your confidence is shot for that move. And and that's what we're trying to prevent that. We're trying to get you always in a positive mindset and get you back to the process. To me, chipping the ball and having a great short game makes the target bigger. So you yeah. should feel like under, you know, as you get a hold of this, and like I said, there's gonna be there's gonna be some moments where you have to convince yourself, but if you believe in the geometry, that's where the confidence comes from. Right. If I don't move up or down or left with the center of my circle, then I don't have to create any compensations with any other part of my body to make up for that. So it's all about standing tall with long arms, letting those things work for you. I think you're going to find that it's much easier and that it yeah. should give you more and more confidence. And that's uh, leaning it. over the fence uh, thing that you said. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was very helpful Yeah, for me to, to, for, to that feeling. And at first it felt super awkward. And then I think, you know, I settled back into a more normal stance. Like I'm not actually leaning over a fence trying to chip a ball. But you're feeling that posture. I'm feeling tall. Like I'm, yeah. like, I'm like I'm tall looking over the ball. Clayton and, added a really good image of, I don't know if you've ever seen Tool Time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good show. Tool Time. Who was the guy on the other side of the fence? Mr. Wilson. <laughs> is that right that's a good game. yeah, yeah. Uh, that is right mr wilson wait so so if anybody's questioning what we're talking about please go see the youtube video i think gus did a great job explaining uh the short game in a way that uh, i think a lot of amateurs are, are overlooking and uh, i'm excited to see sean develop this new skill how does he transition from hitting these shots in at work, just chip shots. How does he transition the same principles to pitch shots, Gus? I think what's interesting is that a lot of people are afraid of a tight lie. So we talk about it all the time. The Brooks Kepka shot on 17 is like a fantastic example of what everybody gets nervous about the U.S. Open. And I actually look at that shot, and out of all the shots he hit that day, to me – If you take out the situation, that was actually the easiest for him to perform because it required the the simplest of motions. I think the cleaner the lie you have, the easier it is to believe in this. And so I think what you're going to see is practicing off that firm carpet in the funeral home. I think you're going to say, man, if I can chip it off this, if I can chip it off the tightest of lies, then it should give you even more confidence. So if you go to the golf course and you have that little Poana cushion or the Kentucky bluegrass in the rough, I think you're going to feel like, oh, man, I can do anything with this lie. Right. It's uh, you're you're practicing on the lie that requires you to execute the fundamental at the highest level. And if you keep doing that, I think you're going to see all the other shots become super easy. But the principle remains the same, I guess, is my question. How does he go? Because right now, the last video he sent me, he's pitching at three feet and it's rolling out 15 feet, how does he uh, go to where he's trying to fly this 10 yards and let it roll a foot? Is it the same exact principle? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so you're close, Sean. I will say that. You're very close. I think now it's about learning how to use your tools differently. And so with, with the golf club specifically, I would say that the first thing we have to do is we have to open up the club face And the more you open up the club face, the more you're going to have to find your body aiming more and more left. Basically, why do you have to aim left with your body when you open the club face? Because the path has to go more left for one to get the ball started online. And then you're also trying to equate for that 
club face angle being so far right, you're trying to aim more left. The ball, the ball in in, in layman's terms, if you're just chipping, is coming out right as soon as you strike it. I mean, that's just what's happening. To hit that shot, it has to start right in your in your vision. And so you're trying to make up for that difference with setup. Because club the, face is king. The ball is going to go where the club face is looking. Yeah, Trackman tells us that 80% of where the golf ball starts has to do with where the club face is pointed, not where the path of the club is going. Sorry to get you uh, off track there. So if he's trying to hit a pitch, he's got a more open club face and proceed with your train of thought. I just want to insert myself. Yeah, there. yeah, no, absolutely. The, uh, the idea here is you're going to aim more left, you're going to open the club face, and you're going to make sure the ball stays forward. I think the big, the big, when you open up your body, I think ball position doesn't make sense to a lot of people. And so I'm going to put out another video from a face-on angle that's going to show you how the ball position actually works. But as you turn left, you're not just pointing your left leg back. It's not like you're just pulling your left side out. You're walking around the barrel, right? So both feet have to move. So your left foot's going to move back and your right's going to move forward. And when you do that, you have to make sure that the ball stays up into your left heel. Because if it moves back, it's hard for you to understand this idea. Basically, what you're going to see is the straighter you keep your lines in terms of your, your right arm in the golf club, the straighter you keep your lever, the more spin you're going to put on the golf ball. It's because you're going to start hitting the golf ball without compression. And as soon as you do that, that's when you're going to open up the golf course. That's it's going to be really cool. This is this is the coolest thing about golf because I believe anybody in America can learn this skill, and it literally will change the game for you overnight. So I'm cool. excited for you. I think I think you'll be I think you'll be blown away with the shots that you're capable of hitting with the motion that you're using because you i think it's literally like one of those moments where you're like oh my god i wasted a lot of time you know <laughs> like i could have yeah. been doing this a long time a big part of it gus is it doesn't have to do with ball speed like he's hitting it with so much more loft that the ball's literally it has more spin on it because of the loft but it's also coming out more slowly and that's a big right. part of of putting more spin totally. on it i think everybody um on golf works or looks at the golf website saw the video of abraham answer hitting those nippy little pitches i'm getting ready for an event right and they were talking about the difference of his ball versus tiger's ball and why his ball's stopping so quickly and, and they were showing that where the ball was in in relation to the swing meaning uh, abraham released it to his shoulder and tiger released it to the shoulder they were showing how much further tiger's ball was away from him than abraham's what they're talking about is the the face. So the ball is designed to smush off the face, right? So when the driver hits it, it's designed to compress. That's what it's designed for. That's why the ball is so great right now. But as soon as you compress it, what also happens? The ball so suddenly drops in spin, right? So when we get down to 2,500 RPMs, it's because when the ball gets smushed, and then expands, it's actually taking spin off the ball. But when we want to hit a really spinny wedge, what we're trying to do is keep the ball as whole as possible. And so you don't want to hit it with a square face because you don't want it to smush. So I've hit so many wedges when I was 15, 16, 17 years old where I absolutely, positively said, 
I hit the <laughs> hell out. Like, that is perfect. And I would watch that ball bounce over the green. And it felt heavy at the bottom. It felt like it totally pured it. What I didn't understand was that's absolutely the feeling of what you want to do when you're hitting a driver. You want it to feel heavy. You want to feel the weight of the ball in the face. But with a wedge, you're trying to keep it in a big circle. So the more you can keep it a sphere, the more you're going to put your revs on the ball. How and does, that's what you're really trying to do. How does the contact feel different even on these chips? Is it, do you notice any difference, Sean? Oh, yeah. Definitely. I do. I noticed, I noticed using the bounce more. Like I wasn't like clipping it. What does that mean to you using the bounce more? Like I, I could feel, I didn't really feel the ball as opposed to when I was like. You felt the bottom of the club. I felt the bottom of the club mm -hmm. going perfectly under the ball as opposed to my old chipping where I would feel like I would feel the ball and I'd be like, wow, I'd like Gus said, like, wow, that's going to be a great spinner. And then it would <clears throat> go 15 feet past the green or past mm -hmm. the hole. So I could feel almost like, when I'm uh, like it's how it feels like if there's a really tight lie, like on hard pan or dirt and I'm just trying to do the best I can and I'm not real confident and I, the ball, the club, the club just slides underneath. I don't really feel the ball. There's no divot. It just feels like, I don't know, like a, like a butter knife, like very yeah. smooth. That's a good yeah. feeling. It should feel like it's gliding. That's you what know? it feels like. It feels like yeah. it was like, like smooth instead of like, like a stab i think that you have gained uh, a very big skill and something new and uh i think that uh, this will be something that you can put in play in your qualifier and i think that that's it's only going to get better it's just you got information and that information is slowly turning into a new skill and you'll get you'll play tomorrow you'll be able to tomorrow. hell yeah yes. what, are you, what are you doing tomorrow yes oh should I, we get into it? We got more process stuff. All right, no, all right. So no. we did the chipping. So everybody at home. So that's what we were working on the chipping. Go watch and, the YouTube video, Gus did. Yeah. It's on the Instagram page. A little short version. Go see the full 13 minute version. Um, one last thing on the chipping. Gus had you fill in the negative space inside the ball. Does that cause a lot of stress for you, or did you pick that up pretty easy? Uh, one or two whacks of that garbage can. I was, you know, wasn't hitting it, but. What what really helped me was that video that you sent Clay of yeah. over the top of the ball, like the club in a straight line. Mm. Yeah, uh, that that helped. And then sending me a couple of those other videos of like Rory chipping and it being straight, like more like straight back, straight through. I know that's not actually what's happening, but that's what it. That's what I needed to see. And then I and then it didn't have then didn't cause a problem because I think it was pretty much. More so rolling the wrist than taking it back inside. Taking it back inside, it was okay. Or it was easy for me to avoid. But rolling the wrist was, I think, the problem. So once I could see that the groove where they should actually be uh, helped. So uh, the British Open happened. Who 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 won? Did Tiger win the British Open? I he didn't he did. win? I, I, thought he, he did. I thought he won the British Open. Yeah, he got his 19th major. Clayton, can you confirm? <laughs> I'm showing uh, Shane Lowry, an Irishman, oh, won the uh, Open. The first time in like 50 years that the uh, the Claret Jug was brought to the uh, Irish Isles. You know, two different countries there, Northern and uh, regular Ireland. But uh, a regular Ireland guy won the Open, and it was up in Northern Ireland. He freaking <laughs> won by like six. 
Everybody was like, uh-oh. I was coming back into the Caddyshack, and they had it on, and they're like, uh-oh, Shane Lowry's really, like, you know, blowing it. And then you get, like, a four-shot lead with <laughs> ten holes to go. And then I'm like, okay, maybe. We'll see. And then, like, three holes left. He's got a six-shot lead, two holes left. I always just want to see these guys come to 18T with a six-shot lead, hit pitch and wedge, and then just putt it down the fairway. I think that would be so grown. I think you're right. You're right. You're right. What a fantastic lead into the most uh, boring golf tournament of the year for the most part. I mean, I felt like I was watching the black 3M open. <laughs> um, I mean, Adam Scott missed the cut, right? Mark Leishman misses the cut. Phil misses the cut. Tiger's not even close. Rory goes down in flames. What was it about Royal Portrush that you think got under at least half of the world's best players. Like, how did Shane Lowry win at Royal Portrush? Looked like he got some good bounces to me, and he was also uh, just had the right mindset. They didn't really ever have bad weather. They were calling like, oh, Sunday's weather is going to be pretty brutal, but it never got all that bad. It just looked to me like he was uh, in the zone, and uh, every week there's always somebody that makes like more 20-footers than the rest of the field, and they end up winning, but... I don't know. I, I'm not a big like golf analytics guy, but it was cool watching Shane play. He seems like a really down to earth guy. He's nice to his caddy. I respect that as a semi professional caddy. I dig that. I saw a cool video of them partying afterwards in some Irish pub with the claret jug, and that looked like a lot of fun. That's all I really care about. Not to poop on your premise there, but I don't know. Why do you think the golf course was so hard? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I mean, I agree. I the, the cool part was watching them celebrate. I think I saw three golf shots all week. I was on the tee all afternoon, Saturday and Sunday, teeing people off or teaching, and it was hot. It was like 100 degrees in Jacksonville. By the time I got back into the shop, they were like, oh, he's on 17. I'm like, cool, just tell me who wins. And, uh, I mean, I don't know. The, more, the thing I was most concerned about was our buddy put hard-earned coffin money on the line how'd you make out sean i went i lost 100 bucks and what hurts the most is i think i've told clay this before i don't know if i told him the podcast but a lot of my golf betting not my picks but where i just like learn is this twitter community of guys that just bet on golf and there's this one guy who bets what i like i like college football and i like golf he specializes in both and did i tell his bets no i didn't he had shane lowry 66 to 1 so what? that won't hurt because he's one of my guys. Adon 7X. Great, great. Adon, drop him. Let's get Adon 7X on the show. That's what I'm talking about. He is, he's, he's just a um, great follow on Twitter. Because very just, here's my bets if you don't like it. All right, so so eight on seven X had Shane Lowry sixty six to one. Mm-hmm. You didn't tail his action. Mm-hmm. Would you play this week? I played a whole slew of bets. I went off this other guy, Pat Mayo, because his are easy, and I didn't have time to do anything. Like, I didn't look at anybody else's, and he just has a little cheat sheet of all that he bets, so I pretty much just held him. I really gave no original thought except a couple parlays just because I really didn't I didn't have time to get into other people's to compare notes. So that was what, just lazy betting, but I did a was, whole bunch of stuff. What was your worst or your biggest bad beat of the week? What does that mean as a non-gambler? 
Okay, a bad beat means like you. It's in the bag for ninety percent of the contest, and somehow you kind of get backdoored out of a out of a victory. Oh, somebody so, chokes. So, like in poker, it would be like someone rivered trip kings on you, and you had top pair the whole time. Uh, you know, you know they, they the bad beats in golf aren't really they don't really happen. You know, like maybe maybe somebody blows it. Like Rory missing the cut would have been a bad beat. Not really. I mean, I don't bet favorites, so I don't care if Rory misses the cut. I'm never betting Rory McIlroy in any tournament ever. So if you're betting, if you're betting a hundred bucks on Rory at seven to one, boring. Are you? Do you think that's a terrible way to look at it from a gambler's perspective? Are there players who are betting the favorites that are making money, or is it impossible? We talked you know, about it on the first show, but yeah, a lot of people that bet golf look at it as are the odds good enough? Or if you think Rory McIlroy is going to win the tournament, then those are obviously the best odds because he's going to win the tournament, whether it's two to one, seven to one, eight to one. If that's who you think is going to win the tournament, then bet a hundred bucks. I would rather take ten bucks or take a hundred bucks, split it across ten guys, and hope to bet Matt Wolf at one twenty-five to one. And maybe I win one or two times a year, but I'm winning a few thousand dollars versus betting a hundred bucks on Rory to win, and he's making two times this year. So you know, maybe if I have to bet him every single time, and I maybe I'd make a thousand bucks if I bet them both times. So I know there's people that tune into this show every week, essentially to hear Sean Canan's plays. So the Cannonator, bring the heat for this week's. Where are they playing? WGC, St. Jude Classic. Uh, where is it? Someone help Memphis. me with that. Memphis. Memphis. A TPC Southwind. Did uh, Timberlake Whoa. get an exemption? I know that they're giving Romo exemptions of these things. Did Timberlake get an exemption for this one? Uh, I don't know. He might be playing in the Barracuda Championship, running parallel mm. to the WGC. Okay. So the WGC for everybody at home stands for the World Golf Championships. It basically is like whoever's made the most money in the last year gets in the field, right? That's basically the deal. You have a fair amount of, and it's a world championship, so they have to get everybody like it. They're super inclined to get, you know, Abraham Answer and Shugo Umahira and CT Pan because it speaks to their brand. They're trying to sell it. So you have a really big worldwide field. So the Cannonator is going to come out with five locks. I want everybody to chart these, put them down, Write them down. These are the cold stone locks of the week. Cannonator, hit me with it. Clay, I'll, I'll send my bet sheet to Clay. He can post it. I know I made three bets. I went with John Rahm, 14 to 1. Ooh, I like it. DeChambeau, 20 to 1. And Matt Wolf, I forget what oh. I bet he is to be. Maybe 60 to 1. The Wolfies back on the tablet. Yeah, play on the wolf, the wolf pack. doesn't give a f if it's a wgc if it's a tpc if it's a pro-am you know the why it's an even hit. better pick because he's mad doggy that they cold shouldered him into the u into the open i was looking for my boy in the field flip through you know going to like select your player go to the w no wolf he wins a tour event and doesn't get in the open how's that happen Doc Redman took his he spot. He might even be 80 to 1. Oh, Doc played well, though. Doc did Doc play good. Well. He did yeah. play a lot. The Clem- good showing from the Clemson guys 
this week. But I did take off. He might have been 80 to 1, actually. And I know I could have got better odds on both Rahm and DeShambo if I would have bet him earlier. But I'm not. Uh, there's some savages out there that bet golf on Sunday before the previous tournament's over, basically. Like, this is what I'm betting you. on Monday. You know, because Honey, I got to go to work. I got to get on the computer, put it the bed. Yeah, in. some guys got a lot of clout where once they tweet out, hey, I'm betting John Rahm, odds drop instantly. So, the Sharps, the Sharps in the Vegas, sharps, they the take sharps, it early. Yeah, they do, and I don't because I don't, I don't care that much. Right. Uh, but, you know, the, for, the, for betting, the British Open, my bets were pretty much shot on Thursday, so my interest in watching the golf was out the window. You know, I was relying on Benny on to get top 20. That's what I was caring about on Sunday. <laughs> Who in the world was caring about Ben Young on to finish top 20? But me. <laughs> that is the best, the degenerate gambler. So you got to, everybody's got to follow in. So we got John Rom, 14 John to 1. DeShambo. Yep. Who's still playing single length irons, correct? Probably. He, he's out. He's not going to win. <laughs> next. Next. And, and then who's the final pick? And Matt Wolf. And Matt Wolf. Wolf the back. Wolf Pack is back. And he is Don't pissed worry. off. All right. So well, let me redirect this conversation. We, We've talked about skills. We've gotten Sean's lockdown picks of the week. You know, golf to me is about two different things. There's skill, like you're building your skills. And then when you get out onto the golf course, it's your job to access your skills. So Gus gave Sean a couple of drills in the last episode, ways to flip the script on how you look at the golf course. Have you had a chance to get out and try any of those since episode one? I did. Uh, so I, I, I play men's league every Thursday. And I was lucky enough to go down prior to nine hole shotgun. And I was able to go down before. So I was going to try to, you know, play 18 holes, play the back nine first and then do the front nine. So I, I did that. And the one that Gus mentioned was instead of shooting numbers, you know, think of 72 good golf shots or uh, make golf shot a par. So I did that for the first hole. And I didn't really understand how to score a par golf shot. So if it went where I wanted to, the first I was like, okay, that's par. And then on the second hole, I needed, I wanted like a bigger variance to make it a good shot. Like if it was five feet yeah. or 25 feet, it scored the same. And what I used to do four or five years ago is anytime I hit a shot into a green, I told Clay this, I envisioned field goal posts. And I just try to get the ball to land in the field goal post, which is usually – the entire green. So if it comes down in the field goal post, that was a good shot for me. So I proceeded to go back to that. That way it was just simple for me to score a good shot or a bad shot. If it landed within my imaginary field goal post, and I'm going to carry that into this upcoming invitation member guest tournament. Going so, so what'd you shoot on the nine holes? I had to, I had to stop early. So I played five holes and I don't even know what I shot because I was kind of rushing a little bit and it was about 105 degrees, which is hot for Buffalo. I know you're probably used to it. So I was just looking to get on a cart and have some beers. Cold beer. That's I was kind of rushing through it, to be honest. So I like what you honed in on, on the field goals. And I like that you're going to be able to take that to this, this whole like process thing is very personal. So I think that's going to be a big part of your process and that'll help you visualize and to me, par for each shot is like how well the result resembled your intent. 
And without a really good intent, you don't have anything to judge against. So for you having a field goal, that's a pretty good way of visualizing how you want the ball to travel. If you kick the field goal, you know, give yourself a par. And then to me, the, the real meat of this whole process is when you do miss the field goal cross beams, I don't, I'm not a big sports guy. Is that proper field goal cross beams? Or did I give no. myself away? Yeah, yeah, there's a cross. The uprights. <laughs> so when you do miss the uprights, the it's important, in my opinion, to see non-technically why you missed it. Because you know you can hit the shot. Um, that goes into your honest plan. You're trying to do something you know you can do. So when you do miss the field goals, it's your job, in my opinion, to figure out why from a non-skill or non-technical like standpoint. And that's typically because you're thinking about something other than what you're trying to do. You're thinking about your swing thought. Somewhere along the line, you lose that mental clarity of, this is what I want to do. This is my intent. That's it. I'm not thinking about the, the outcome of this shot. I'm just simply giving my body instructions and staying with those instructions until the ball is airborne. And I think that's how you're going to coach yourself to become less outcome oriented and more like process based. Yeah. I'm looking forward to giving it. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see how I diagnose shots that I miss Cause I've never really done that ever before is care about why I missed a shot. Like I how vividly played. did I see the cross posts? Like, did I take the time to really visualize or did I kind of half-ass that shot? Like those are the kind of questions that you're going to ask yourself leading up into the mid-am. And in the mid-am, the heat's on and everything is is trying to yell at you to like become score-oriented. But your goal for that thing is to see field goal posts on every shot and stick and with it's that. Easy. It's easy for me to see field goal posts at Springville because every green is surrounded by trees. So not only do I don't even envision field goal posts, I just say that tree and that tree landed in between those two trees. So I don't even yeah. have to mentally good visualize frame. anything. I just I get to watch the ball land in between those two trees. Hopefully. So so did be, you another? I, sorry to interrupt. Another drill that Gus lined up for you uh, was to hit to different quadrants of the green away from the pin. Did you have a chance to try that? I did not get to do that one. Gus, what's the purpose of that? That was a good recommendation. What is what's going on there mentally if you're learning to play away from the pin? I think you're trying to. I think first and foremost, I still do this. I still make mistakes today, yesterday, where I pick the wrong club, and choosing the right club is everything. So it's all about understanding your like your real first Neil was right. He talked about in the first episode, how far do your clubs really go? Well, it's really important to know how far each of them carry. And when you pick those quadrants, you're essentially picking different front edges and different back edges. So you're really trying to see what club can get you back into that target and also eliminate risk. Right. So we're always trying to uh, understand the risk of hitting a bad shot and calculating that risk and in picking the club that best associates itself with that managed risk. So I like quadrants because I think it just, it's the same field goal idea. It's the same, uh, you know, frame. It's just making that frame smaller. Right. And I think that comes with becoming a better player. I think everybody's doing a field goal. I just think Rory's field goal is three feet wide and yours is the whole green. The quadrant idea, I think, is is to help people understand what club is actually the club 
that they need to be hitting. Is, um, is part of it too strategic? Like you, you get to a point where you know the greens at your course well enough to know you have to leave yourself below the pin. Um, or when you go to a new course and you use a yardage book and you see these massive slopes and you got a back left pin and all of a sudden you're like, you know what, this hole, you know, it's kind of a par hole. Like it's not really worth it chasing this back left pin. Let's play to the middle of the green is uh, to me, that's part of it as well. Yeah. You talked about that. I think if you follow along Clayton's, uh, sort of news feed, follow him along on Facebook, he talks a lot about comfort and plan. But I think what I like most about that, because I kind of get wrapped up, I think, too much in the plan in my own game. But comfort is 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 an interesting word. And I think it's the word that really speaks to um, really great course managers. They're just trying to figure out where. OK, so back left gives you the heebie jeebies for whatever reason. Right. You don't like to turn it over. You don't want to hit it back there. You don't want to miss long. You don't want to miss short of that whatever it is, but that back left area gives you some problems. Well, what flag stick, if you could manage it in your mind, if you could just imagine what flag stick would give you the green light here, right? And you say, well, that front center one would give me the green light. And I was like, so all of a sudden, so we changed the flag position from maybe at best 20 feet, right? 30 feet, which is 10 yards. And all of a sudden you feel tremendously different and more confident about it over 30 feet. And if you pull it off that line, let's say five feet and it's the perfect listen, you walk up to that birdie putt with a one in five chance of making that putt. If you play those odds all day, if we're talking about long odds, you're going to love that percentage all the day comparably to let me keep shooting at that back left flag. So I think it really teaches you how to create comfort. And then where do you see it? And as some players, based on their shot shape and based on their history, they're really comfortable from going from the right side of fairways to left flags. Or they're really comfortable from being on the left side of fairways to left flags, right? So there's these different angles in play on a golf course that make you feel comfortable. I think it's searching for those angles. How do you make up the golf course in your mind to figure out ways to make you most comfortable? And in that, in essence, is managing your game, the golf course, and hopefully you're shooting around 72, right? I mean, that's the idea, right? 72 pars. Every shot's a par. So I think... I would go back to you, Clay. I would say playing to different quadrants allows you to find your comfort zone and allows you to see the shot. And then you can ask questions like, why is that more comfortable? Right? Yeah, I think that's a that was a big aha moment for me going through Stephen Yellen stuff is, you know, when when you can do something and you know when something's stressful. And if you can have the discipline to hit hit the least stressful shot every time, you may not make it through the mid am, but at least you've got a pretty honest plan, um, and playing the long odds. I mean, you're a good putter, so you don't have to be stuffing it all day. You just got like, I'll, in a future episode, we'll talk about course management. I kind of laid out, uh, what's the name of it? Lancaster. There's a YouTube video up. If you want to see where Sean's going to be playing, we'll, we'll go through that on a future future episode, but I think it's going to be a, a hit you figuring out a way to hit the least stressful shot every time. And I think Paul Azinger gave a really good little nugget on the broadcast. I got to give throw him a bone. It was very subtle, but I thought it was pretty pretty uh, valuable for the listener at home. Um, Lowry had kind of a tough left to right wind and a hole that went right to left. And his call was was 
You know, in a situation like this, you have to become absolutely obsessed with where the ball is going to go. And to me, that means that you are so wrapped up in the process of visualizing where this shot is going to go that swing thoughts or the situation or the little scorekeeper in your head doesn't have room. They're locked out looking in the house. You've got the door shut and you are absolutely obsessed with where this ball is going to go. And that process is what creates comfort, in my opinion. It's not like you're trying to feel comfortable. Comfort, you know, people talk about med- meditation is all the rage now. But the key with meditation is like you're focusing on one thing. And then the process of focusing on one thing is what makes you feel better. Because people all day long have 10,000 thoughts ringing through their head. Did I remember to pay the water bill? You know, did I get the kid to school on time? You know, I got that appointment. Yada, yada. And all these things are chattering in the back of your mind subconsciously. But if you become absolutely obsessed with what you're trying to do, that kind of, in my opinion, is what goes into creating an honest plan. And then that, like, honest comfort just seeps in there. Yeah. Sean, what do you think? Uh, I'm still trying to find out what's comfortable for me. Like, what? I haven't, I haven't, I don't know what is comfortable in a tournament setting. I know how I feel when I'm out playing. If I was playing with you guys, I would be comfortable the entire time. I don't know yet how to have, I know I'm not going to feel the exact same way playing with you guys and playing in a tournament of any consequence, but um, I don't know yet. Yeah. One of one of the things that's going to add comfort is the skill that you're going to be you're going to have a new skill that you'll be excited to put in play in the tournament. And I think you'll be able to chip and pitch way better than you think that you can in a tournament. Um, You're going to have to keep hitting shots in the funeral home. But I think that's going to be huge because if all of a sudden it's it's not a real long golf course, but you're going to miss some greens. And if you have a little bit more belief that you're going to get up and down. Like Gus says, you know, the target really expands. Um, I think you're going to have that skill, but I, I think the trick, honestly, in the what I saw guys do on the mini tours is they were so loose, and, and I know it's it's tough to, to kind of manifest this looseness, like I'm going to go out there like I don't care, but the way that they do it is because they're process-oriented. It's not like they're trying to not care, but – as a again as like a side effect of seeing the field goal posts only like you can cut up with your group and have a good time and uh whatever have a couple of beers if they'll let you do that i don't know if they'll let you drink in a usga event just the best you can do this short short out is be process oriented which sounds like see field goals and if you hit a bad shot try to figure out what corrupted your visual of the field goal why didn't i see it or if i did see it what about my thought process made me uncomfortable. Was there a swing thought that crept in there instead of just the ease with which you swing uh, at no ball? That's one of the po- follow-up videos I put on the on the first podcast. Is like, what should I be measuring my comfort based on? And a good answer to that is like, just visualize an imaginary ball on the ground and take a swing and no plan, nothing, and like how stressed out were you swinging at an imaginary ball? I mean, most people will say no, no stress at all. And you're never going to get there, but you can judge yourself like on a scale of 1 to 10. How close was I to the carefree attitude that I had just letting it go, swinging at this imaginary ball? And 
I find that my technique's not quite as good when I um, allow myself to swing with that kind of freedom. But the good news is, is there's a bit of your brain called the cerebellum that if you allow it to work and do its thing, it's going to make the little mini manipulations that you need to square the club face during the motion. As soon as you become involved in trying to square the club face, you're toast. You have to find a way to swing with freedom, and that's a process-oriented approach. Field goals, and then swing as though it doesn't matter. There's just an imaginary ball on the ground. Make your normal swing. Let it go. That's the best you can do. I might shoot a 59 tomorrow. Oh, sure. ooh. Get get lost in your visuals. Get lost in the process and show them your new <laughs> chipping. If people come out, you're like, oh, my God, how'd you learn how to chip like that? That'll be that'll add to your uh, confidence. I'm going to tell them I got a lesson from the pro at Tim Aquana. Hell, yeah. How much that cost? <laughs> <laughs> if you have dash, you can't afford it. Clay, what can we look forward to into the next episode? We're going to talk about Sean's. Obviously, he's going to go play in his member guest. So we're going to have a lot of good feedback and feels from him there. Um, and then what else are we looking forward to in episode three? So to me, episode one, we, we framed what we're trying to do here. We're, we're trying to set Sean up with something that he can do, focus on what he can control, and what he can control is his process. And then in this episode, we're trying to define his process. It's very personal. So it sounds like his best way of visualizing is field goal posts. Um, part of his process, too, is like we're increasing his skills. He's getting more money in the bank because he's got a, an improved, uh, less manipulative chipping and pitching motion. That's going to raise his confidence up. And we've talked about some of these drills that have helped him thinking about par on every shot versus uh, par for a hole. Um, I've described my like scorecard mentality, how you can see, did I see my visual? Well, all those things are going to boil up. Sean's going to digest them and make them his own. He's going to play around with his ball position to start trying to hit high soft pitch shots. That's going to add to his confidence when he starts seeing these things land like sandbags. So this is all going into Sean's process, but the next episode is going to be about Sean specifically preparing for Lancaster Country Club. And there's a YouTube video that I put together with like a little drone flyover. Um, and uh, we're going to learn about Sean's carry numbers between now and then. His homework is to get us really good carry numbers. Right now, it's like this sort of amorphous blob of like, I don't really know how far I hit my stuff. So if he wants to get a put a good plan together for this tournament, we got to know how far he carries his clubs within five yards. And we got to figure out the mystery of the gap wedge. Sounds like he tried out the 125-yard shot with sort of like a choke down pitching wedge. He was able to do it, but uh, it's going to be up to him to figure out how far he carries these things. How can I fill these gaps comfortably? We're going to get all that data. We're going to look at the golf course that we're looking at, and we're going to put a plan together. And then our that's all we can do. We got a plan. And then when he's once he's out there and he, he already knows ahead of time based on what the wind's going to look like, he already knows what clubs he's going to pick. That's going to add comfort to his process because he's not having to figure it out while he's out there. He can focus on cutting up with his buddies, and then he's going to confidently pull out his – three iron on the hole where he only needs to carry it 210 and he's going to pull out the driver on the hole where it's obviously driver episode three is going to be about how the average joe can use google earth and a wind forecast in their carry numbers to put a plan together for a golf course and take it to its knees baby
Guys, this is Sean Canan, the dad bird, cannonator, signing off from Buffalo, New York. And always remember, bet the big dogs only. <laughs>